Psalm 23, if you have a Bible, I don't know if you've ever heard of this psalm before, um, but if not, I'm going to read it to you in full. So Psalm 23, uh, verses 1 through 6, which is the whole thing. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this day uh, that you've given us, another day of life, another day to live for you in this, uh, in this wonderful, created universe that you've made. And so we ask a blessing on the next few moments that we would hear some new things, some fresh things, and be reminded of things that we have forgotten. Uh, it's in your name we pray and everyone said, Amen. Amen. So Psalm 23 sits at really the top of one of the most uh, known passages in all of Scripture. Uh, even if you're just faintly aware of it or you've never heard it until just now, just trust me when I say that in both the Jewish and Christian traditions, this uh, passage rises to the top as one of the most familiar uh, in the Bible, one of the most loved. It's most often heard at funerals. Uh, part of my vocation is to attend and even officiate funerals. And Psalm 23 is almost always on the reading list at, those, uh, at every single one of the funerals I've ever done. And the thing about it is it's not read really on behalf of the deceased. It's in fact read for and on behalf of the surviving family and friends. It's read as an encouragement to live forward, to keep going, to move on. And though it's often read in settings where life has ended, it's actually about what it means to live life. And so the psalm is actually a psalm of living, of experiencing life. And Psalm 23 is... And the category of Psalms is a prayer of confidence in God. It's a prayer about trusting God, really of contentment in God's shadow, if you will. And the whole thing turns on two primary images of God. One is the image of the shepherd, and the other is the image of the host. The shepherd and the host. And I want to just reflect on those for uh, just a few minutes together uh, while we can. The first verse, as you uh, probably know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, the, the idea of a shepherd in the Bible is pretty popular because shepherding was fairly popular. Uh, I know that shepherding has nothing to do with the worlds that you and I live in. Uh, if it does, I would love to talk to you. Uh, but most of us do not get up every day and think about the sheep we have to take care of and the pasture that we have to go and walk around in all day long. There are parts of the world where that takes place, and it's beautiful, and the scenery is amazing. But for you and me, this is completely off the radar, this idea of, uh, of a shepherd. But calling God a shepherd in the Bible is pretty common. It's also not unique uh, to the people of Israel. The ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures often referred to their gods and their kings as shepherds over their people. There's this 18th century B.C. document called the Code of Hammurabi. I know you want to read that when you get home. <laughs> but in the epilogue, the king says, I make my people lie down in safe pastures. Does that sound familiar? So Israel has 
traditions to borrow from when it's talking about the God that we know and love. And the image here is of care and commitment. And the assumption is that the shepherd will provide and take care of their sheep. And the assumption is of a faithful presence, of a selfless commitment. And really the assumption is a good versus a bad shepherd. Jesus has a lot to say about bad shepherds. And when he's speaking about shepherds, it's not so much a person with a staff and sheep, of course. But it's about people who oversee people, people who take care of others. There are good and bad shepherds. And the assumption in Psalm 23 is that we're talking about a good shepherd. Because there are bad shepherds. There are bad presidents. There are bad, hold your laughter, there are bad mayors. Uh, You may work for a company where you would say, I'd say the manager is pretty bad. Or the employer is bad. Uh, There are bad pastors. Please hold your comments. There uh, There are bad parents. The most recognizable field in which we are all shepherded is in our homes. And it's not always uh, filled with good shepherds. And there are people whose role it is to shepherd us, to care for us. And many, and sometimes all of them, are really no good at it. And Psalm 23 begins with this understanding that God shepherds us and takes care of us. And the qualifier for God is this next line where it says, and I shall not what? Want. Red flag if you're reading the Bible. We do want stuff. It doesn't matter how spiritual and connected to Jesus you may be. We, we want things. We all have desires. I hope we have things that we desire. Um, I have a few. I want my old van back. This is a picture of my old van. <laughs> Steve, right? I mean, come on. 1971, Westphalia, bought it off eBay. It ran okay. Uh, I want it back. My son, every, like once a week, he says to me, when are we getting our van back? Because we were just about to install a stereo so that we could play all the Grateful Dead that we own. And we sold it. So, sold it to a German, no less. It was amazing. So, whose wedding I ended up doing in his backyard, and he went on a honeymoon in that van. It was really hard for me to, uh, <laughs> to see that take place. Uh, but I want my old van back. It's just some, I really do, I really do. I also want my old body back. I mean, here's a high school picture. Uh, you know, it's like, are you with me on that? Most of you guys look great, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, don't, don't we all? I do. I have, like, things that I want. I want more books. If you've been to my place, you know that we live in a bookstore. Uh, I don't mind more books. Just give me more. We'll stack them. We'll build more shelves. I like it. I want more records. You know me. Again, if you've been to my place, there's just a lot of records. I, I want more. I want more. I want, I want those things. You know? I really want a church building. I really... You have no idea. <laughs> I'm 45. I don't know how many more years. I mean, like, you'll have me do this, but it's like, if we could just get a building, that's what I want. God, that's what I want. You know? And it's hard for me to pray like I shall not want. Because I shall want a building. (laughs) (laughs) But more realistically, there are just things that we all desire. 
and want. We desire friendship, love, health, security, stronger faith. There are things on our wants list that are really, really good for us. And there are things that are on our wants list that aren't good for us. But the image of God as a shepherd under whom we no longer want things isn't so much about ridding our lives of desire, but it's about being aware, and this is the key thing, that our desires have the potential to become our gods. That our desires can outweigh our desire for God. They can become little idols on which we will sacrifice everything on their altar. All of us know people who have sacrificed all the good things in their lives to get the things that aren't worth it. Sacrificing family and relationships, even their own health, just to get the things they desire. So it's not so much about we don't want things, but it is about keeping our desires and wants in check and that God becomes the ultimate desire for us. This phrase, he restores my soul, this Hebrew word nefesh for soul is about life. It's about the whole self. Some Old Testament translations say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your whole self and with all your strength. It's a great translation. The whole life, not a separated, disembodied soul, but the life that we live, the days that we live, the things that we do. And he restores that. We all drift off course and lose sight of God. We all get fixated on stuff and things and we confuse the temporary with the eternal. So God restoring my soul is this picture of recalibration, of recentering, of a return. And I think it's good for us to speak restoration over each other, to speak restoring our soul over each other, to announce renewal over one another, and to walk with each other as voices of God's care and commitment to us. It's good for us to do that. It's also good for us to be patient with people whose desires and wants have become their gods and who are sacrificing friendships and family and even health in order to attain those wants, knowing that we do that too. The church is a good place to speak restoration over each other, to always say there's another day, there's another tomorrow, and God is still working and speaking. And the church family is a community of hope and of a future, and not one where present failings and missteps should be harped on, but one where we speak renewal to each other. Amen? The writer is saying our shepherd is good, but there's this other image that's so beautiful, and it's the image of the host. The image of God as a host is here. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That sounds really um, exposed to me. Like when you sit down, are you not just, that, you're, you're not strong in that setting. Like you're, uh, you're vulnerable. Especially, I don't know if you're like this, but when I go to a restaurant, I like to sit where I can see the door. Is anybody with me on this? Raise your hand if that's you. Cool, we all have problems, so it's good to just <laughs> I can see it. Um, it's really hard for me if I, I'm the last one to the table at Chick-fil-A and I don't get the right view. Like if I'm staring at the corner of the wall, like I'm not, I'm not happy. So, because I'm afraid if somebody's gonna, like, I don't know. Um, 
they have this game at camp. We just got back from summer camp. Um, they have this game at camp called Human Foosball. Did you play it at all? Okay, good. But it's this like gated foosball cord for humans and they have these long poles and you just like strap yourself to a pole like a foosball. It's really funny looking. But I will never play it because I'm all I'm waiting for is the ball to hit me in the back of the head. You know, that's all I'm waiting for. So unless unless I'm the goalie, yes, I'll play the goalie, but then I'll get hit in the front. I just I don't really want to I don't really want to do that. But this is a picture of God. This is such a beautiful image. It's a picture of God setting a table and inviting us to sit down. That's what we're reading here. And the image of the table throughout the Bible is plentiful. And it's always a positive image. There's never a story or a reference or a metaphor or anything about a table in the Bible that's negative. The table is always a positive thing. When there is a story or a teaching in the Bible involving tables and chairs, we can count on something good happening. We can count on something uplifting taking place. Because the table was a place of friendship, of mutuality, of celebration, of nourishment, and of rest. Come up and sit down. Sit down with us. Relax. And that's what's in play here in this psalm is rest. Rest from our enemies or all those things that press against us in life. Rest from all the struggles we face when our desires become the center of everything. Get rest from that. Because wanting stuff, wanting is so tiring. I don't know if you know that. I'm sure you've experienced it. Just like the, the wanting. It could just wear you down. I want this, I want this, I want this and that. It's just so tiring. And in this part of the prayer, we're all invited to pull up a chair and to rest with God. As hard as it may be to turn our backs on all the stuff that's fighting for our attention. And to be filled with God's grace and mercy in our lives. And to be reminded that it is here, at this table with God, where eternity and our lives meet. Jesus once said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. rest. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? Not I will make you perfect. I will make you sin less. I will make you uh, approved of. But I will give you rest. I will help you rest. There's a wonderful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that can be said before communion. And it goes like this. Lord God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, open our eyes to see your hand at work in the world about us. Deliver us from the presumption that coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this holy communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. I think it's good for us to speak that over each other to speak grace at the table over each other, to keep inviting each other to sit down, so to speak, and to rest in God's presence. It's good for us to be here. I'm always impressed that you come here. They told us in uh, college, no one has to come. No one has to be in your building. It's all, attendance is an act of grace, and we understand that. There's a million other things you could be doing today. Maybe we're on the list, or maybe we're not. 
And so it's so humbling that every Sunday we open the doors and you, you come to worship together. And it's good for us to do that. It's good for us to force ourselves out of bed and to be here and to worship someone other than ourselves, which is the nature of every human being, you and me included. It's easy for us to look inward, but it's nice and healthy to be here and to focus our attention elsewhere. Now, that being said, God is not taking attendance. I don't know if you know that. I mean, some of you are going, good. I'm here all week. Okay. Um, he's not taking attendance. That's not what this is about. The better image of what God is doing is simply that he's, he keeps pulling up more chairs. He keeps pulling up a chair for you and for me to sit with him and to rest from all the other burdens that we experience. The late rabbi, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, said, this then is the answer to the problem of civilization, not to flee from the realm of space, to work with things of space, but to be in love with eternity. Things are our tools. Eternity, the Sabbath, is our mate. Isn't that beautiful? That's the struggle that we all have is to use the tools that we have here on earth, the money, the influence, the jobs that we have, the places where we live, to use those for life, but to not be married to them because eternity is our mate. We are engaged to eternity. And I wish that saying something like, just put your hope in God and all your temporary desires will go away would work, but it doesn't because I still have desires, you still have desires. It doesn't work that way. And that's also very easy. That's too easy. Instead, let me close with this. Instead, I want to encourage you and me to always remember that wherever you are in life and whatever scenes are unfolding in your days of work and relationships and faith, that there is a table set for you. That's what this song reminds us of. There is a table set for you. And it is a place of rest filled with the food of God's grace and mercy. And there's always a chair for you. And we are engaged to eternity with God. Let that always be in the forefront of your minds as you work through your days, struggling with all sorts of things. Remember this prayer this week. The Lord is your shepherd. He will help you with your wants that are unhealthy. But nevertheless, there's always a chair for you at his table.